I'm Leo. I'm Lauren. I'm Trevor, and we are the Boo Crew. This time around, we are joined by writer, editor, director Jade Scheel and occult historian, speaker, and writer Mitch Horowitz of Shudder's phenomenally successful Cursed Films. It is now available on not only digital, but DVD and Blu ray. It's a fascinating five part docuseries exploring the myths and legends behind some of Hollywood's notoriously and allegedly cursed horror film productions. Hear about how it all came to be and their adventures accumulating these incredible stories from the people that lived them. We'll also talk a little bit about what's in store for season two. Episode 154 is now playing. This is Jay Cheel, And this is Mitch Horowitz of Cursed Films. You're listening to another terrifying episode of The Boo Crew. The Boo Crew dusts a fright flick off the shelf for... Ah! Horror Homework. We're going to go around the room and around the World Wide Web all the way out to Leo in beautiful downtown. Let's do it. Eagle Rock! Eagle Rock! They each highlight a horror flick to each other and possibly even to you that we consider a must-see or perhaps worth a revisit, starting with Mr. Leo. Have you guys seen The Shed? No! Looking forward to it, so don't spoil it. Yes. No spoilers. (laughs) It's a 2019 film. It's exclusively on Shudder, okay? It's directed by Frank Sabatella, written by Jason Rice and Frank Sabatella, stars... It's got a sort of a small cast of, of main characters. You have uh, J.J. Warren, who plays Stan. Cody Costro who plays Dahmer. Sophia Happenon plays Roxy. And Frank Whaley, who plays Bane. I'm going to give you a synopsis, okay? The synopsis might pretty much tell you what the movie's about, but there's, you know, the, the way it's constructed and put together and there's a twist and a lot of stuff, it's, it's special, you know? Stan and his best friend Dahmer have put up with bullies their entire lives. All of that changes when Stan discovers he has a murderous vampire living in his shed. Seeing the bloodshed and destruction the monster is capable of, Stan knows he has to find a way to destroy it. But his friend Dahmer has a much more sinister plan in mind. Is this like serial killer Dahmer? Just what comes to my mind. I know, right? That's what I kept thinking. I kept watching it. Until I saw like the cast listing spelling, and I'm like, oh, it's D-O-M-M-E-R. Okay, okay. great. <laughs> this movie is shot very well. Like the cinematography, the camera work, the shots are nicely set up. There's, there's some incredible sunset shots in, in the rural farmland where it takes place that plays a role. For that, I'm going to say think sunlight versus vampires. And there are some good jump scares in this movie that are pretty well earned. Usually, like, you know, they're not trying to scare you with just a cheap noise or something. It's like, no, you're going to get scared, but something's going to fucking frighten you. Something's going to get you, you know? So that's well-earned. That's well-done, well-executed. I mean, the movie just starts off and gives you a quick prologue of, like, hey, here's a setup, and I'm, you know, we're going to fucking scare you in the first three minutes, and then in the next, you know, six more minutes or something else coming, you know? So it's like, they don't waste time to get to the point, which I really loved. And it clocks in in, like, 90 minutes, so it's like, you know, eligible for a sweet screen. Oh, board, you know? yeah! Oh, yeah. hold on. No, 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 no,
God, Leo, don't remind him of this stuff. God. Leo, what do you got for a bell over there? Is that a legit bell? And it's a legit bell. Oh, gosh. Oh, my God. I want to break both your bells. Except <laughs> the ghost closes the gate so you don't hear the uh, end tail of the tin. Oh, bell. man. So it's ringing like crazy over in Eagle Rock right it now. Is. It is. Yeah. So I'll tell you, man, this is a, this, act, this movie has great acting. And it plays out like a more serious tone vampire movie, okay? With some subtle humor sprinkled in. And, and I, I, I laugh at a couple scenes. I'm like, that's fucking funny. What I love is this movie has an overarching theme of bullying throughout the film that plays into the heart of the premise of the film. Very much like that reminds me of one of my favorite movies, which is Let the Right One In. But this movie has its own original ideas, and the way it executes it, this idea of bullying and revenge is quite unique. If you're looking for a different type of vampire movie, I recommend this. It's a Shutter exclusive, so you gotta make sure you check it out. I had a good time with this. I highly recommend it. Looking forward to seeing The Shed, and good job not spoiling it! You're so funny. What do you mean I'm so funny? <laughs> well, you're just funny. Well, that's sometimes when you read reviews, yes. right? They yeah. completely, they just say exactly everything that happens in a movie. So right. I love a good right. review that doesn't do that. Okay, good. And Leo's I mean, great at that. I went in cold, man. I, I'm like, I didn't know anything about this movie. And I saw it. I'm like, wow, this is, this is something different. This is really cool. Yeah. Going into movies cold is just the best, man. There's nothing yep. much like it, man. There's yeah. nothing. Yeah. Yeah, and while you're at it, on Shudder, go and make it a double feature with Incident in a Ghostland. Another one to go in as dark as possible. It's just, oh, nice. God, you're going to have a great night. Get some of that popcorn that we have. Remember, I ordered like $40 worth of that shake, those popcorn salts. Yeah, but it's the popcorn that makes the popcorn, <laughs> not yours. No, nah, I think the salts help, though. I had like a nice white cheddar one. Mm-hmm. There's like a jalapeno nice. bacon and jalapeno one, right? Yeah. They just cover your popcorn in that. And then we got the duds, the milk duds. Yep. And then you double feature it with the shed in Incident in Ghostland. And then later on, some Quibi to watch The Stranger. Yes. Weekend Made. Yeah. Sounds amazing. All right. Well, let's move on to the second film, the double feature, if you will. Lauren and I, uh, we got four (laughs) kits, right? And as such, we love to seek out gateway horror films that can be enjoyed by the entire family. This particular film is great for this. This movie has a lot of both sides of the coin, though. A lot of people who hey. can't stand it, right? Yep. And it's like a 14% oh. rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And then there's a lot of people who absolutely love it. Well, there's nothing but love for this film at the Shan household. It's certainly become a staple rewatch around this time of year when Halloween is in the air. We are talking about 2003's... Disney's The Haunted Mansion. Yeah! Oh, nice! Yes, yes. Uh. Eddie Murphy. Right, that's right. Directed by Rob (laughs) Minkoff, who's also responsible for the Academy Award winning film The Lion King in 1994, Stuart Little and Stuart Little 2, Mr. Peabody and Sherman and and more. The movie stars Eddie Murphy and Marsha Thomason as real estate agents who en route to a much needed family vacation stop off at a house they've been asked to sell only to find out that it's haunted by ghosts including Jennifer Tilly from Bride of Chucky (laughs) as Madame Leota. I do love this movie and I do understand why people don't like it. Really? Because I don't understand why people don't like it, to be honest. I think that there could have been more grim, grinning ghosts. And I think this one is based on Phantom Manor. I think a little bit more based on the French Haunted Mansion. 
it has this really clear storyline of a bride and then her lost lover and her going around the mansion haunting it. So I think it was pulled from that story, right? Not ours at Disneyland. I think there's different versions of this movie. Like, I think there could be a completely different version of the Haunted Mansion. I think there's lots of different stories that this ride can tell. I love this movie and I love the story and I love the characters and I think it's a fun story. But we've also heard about Guillermo del Toro wanting to do one. I mean, that would be crazy. And I think maybe people that wanted a Haunted Mansion movie, maybe didn't want a kid's movie. I think they wanted a dark movie. This is definitely like this is a family adventure film. Right. With ghosts as, you know, as opposed to like a hard horror film for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think people wanted scary. I mean, it does. It definitely does have scary parts. I mean, it's it, but it's tame enough that we could watch with the whole family, including a three year old. Yeah. At the same time, which is that that that's why I like it. You know, because you c- it is something that's horror adjacent that you can watch with the whole family and they're familiar with the ride and everything. Like There's cool homages to the ride, like just yeah. enough without being like, this is a movie about the ride. I also love the set design. Yes. No matter what anyone says about this film, the set design on the Haunted Mansion movie is fantastic. It's lush. It's well done. It really feels like you're walking into it. It's cozy. It's immersive. There's secret passageways and... Like we said, many cool nods to the attraction and Easter eggs. There's actually five hidden Mickeys in, in the film. The first one is the padlock on the gates. The costume design is also outstanding. It's done by Mona May, who did all the stuff in Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. Oh, I and love that movie. Clueless. So nice, she's an nice. incredible costume designer. So she did all the costumes. She actually also did the costumes on House 4 in 1992. A little horror lineage oh, wow. there. And 8mm uh, hmm. as well. The interesting story about the, the making of this film. So it started off as a script written by David Berenbaum, who also did the movie Elf, which is a classic. Nice. It's Disney's fifth film based on the ride. Do you know the first film that was released based on a Disney attraction? 1997's Tower of Terror. Oh, yes. Steve oh. Gutenberg and Kirsten Dunst. Another good one. Yeah, that is a, another gateway yeah. family yeah. horror film. I That's love right. that one. That's yeah. right. It's incredible. It's so fun. Eddie Murphy was attached to the script already as he had been looking to do something in the vein of a ghost comedy like one of the Abbott and Costello movies. And Minkoff also said the first draft of the script wasn't quite right for Eddie, so they made revisions specifically tailored to Eddie Murphy. Don Knotts was supposed to make a cameo as the groundskeeper. Yeah, his agent said they didn't have enough for him doing the film, so that character was dropped. The red couch that's in Gracie's study was used in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And then Marsha Thomason, she was like only 27 years old when they were filming this. And her kids, I think the oldest one, Megan, was 13 years old and her son was 10 years old. So she would have been a teen mom. Wow. Interesting. Wow. I remember when this movie came out, we had her on the show to talk about the movie. On Loveline. Yeah, on Loveline. And she was... That's awesome. Really nice. And she was British and... Oh, yeah. Yeah, she doesn't have an accent in the movie. That's right. Yeah. And as you you were talking about the much-anticipated Guillermo del Toro yes. version of the film, 
So in interviews as recent as when he was doing the scary stories to tell in the dark tour, people were asking him about that. Are we going to see? Because he, he attended like a Comic-Con and they had posters and things. And it was going to be this big thing. They had like a teaser. I think you can watch it on YouTube where he like shows a little quick teaser. So they ask him what's going on with the Haunted Mansion thing. First thing he says is the Haunted Mansion is not an attraction. It's a way of life. Guillermo del Toro, huge Haunted Mansion freak, just like us wow. and just like you listening, I'm sure. He said they had two or three screenplays they would have gladly shot. It was ready to go. Didn't happen. Things were changing at the studios, and he doesn't know if it'll ever happen at no, this point. Ryan Gosling was heavily involved in developing one of those scripts, and this that was is, it. That was what it was wow. going to be. This is breaking my wow. heart right, right now. I'm like going to go cry. Yeah. You know what's going to break your heart even more is that I watched an interview with Del Toro not that long ago, maybe a couple years ago, where he was asked about his future projects. And his answer is a little heartbreaking because he said, given my age and the number of projects that are already greenlit that I'm going to work on, like it's already finite, like it's already set in stone. Like, yeah. So it's like one of these things where it's like, are we going to see this movie, see that movie? And it's like, probably not. So it was an interesting answer because it's just like, you don't expect that somebody to say, well, I'm so busy. Like he's so busy for the rest of like, it's already booked. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what that means. I do have a personal fun fact attached to this film. I did some pre-production large photo prints for this movie for the special effects makeup artist whose name sounds like Bick Laker. (laughs) um, Yeah. Funny thing is, Lauren, you were living like 40 feet away at the time and like you would come in sometimes to say hi and we had to like hide this shit because like nobody could see these were poster sized prints of the characters, you know? And we were like hiding them. We're like, oh, nobody can see these, you know? Oh my <laughs> gosh. So funny. Yeah, yeah, you're talking about those amazing zombie outfits and yes, the ghost yeah. characters oh, yeah. and everything. Yeah. I yeah, Rick Baker yeah. killed it on yeah. this movie. Yeah, that's yeah. another thing. Yeah, he did. He is amazing and his work is phenomenal. And hey, what happened today? We won a Rick Baker Haunted Mansion zombie costume. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Yes. At the prop store auction that went down today, the <laughs> day one at time of release. If you have dismissed it or maybe didn't like it in the past, maybe take another look. I think I've seen this movie more than any movie I've ever seen in my whole life. Wow. What? Yeah. Nice. Just based on the heavy rotation that it gets. Particularly around the Halloween Halloween time. Nightmare Before Christmas, you've seen way more. No way, no way. Haunted Mansion, oh, wow. infinitely more times. No, I would say the number one movie that is played in our house is Hocus Pocus. And this. From beginning to end, I've probably ended up watching the Haunted Mansion way more times. So, yeah, if you're looking for a good gateway horror film for the family or just simply miss going to Disneyland... Haunted Mansion. Gotta watch yep. it. And just announced a new Haunted Mansion movie is in the works with Katie Dippold, an extremely talented writer who co-wrote the fantastic Ghostbusters Answer the Call in 2016, which we absolutely loved. So we're looking forward to returning to the 999 Happy Haunts again soon in a totally new incarnation. Dark spirits from the grave come forth. Don't you make no dark spirits come out while I'm sitting. Wait till I leave before the dark spirits come out. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy studio, he's an award-winning filmmaker whose talent has been spread over several documentaries and shorts, including the acclaimed Beauty Day that premiered at New York's Museum of Modern Art in 2011 and nominated for Best Documentary in 2012. Other work includes How to Build a Time Machine, the TV series Dead Set on Life, and the Travel Channel's Helltown. 
He is also one of the co-hosts of the Film Junk Podcast, where he is known as the Duke of Spook, the longest-running movie podcast on the web, so that they know of. Also here with us is a revered writer, lecturer, and historian, one of the world's foremost experts on esoterica, mysticism, and the occult. He is the author of several books like the award-winning Occult America, The Secret History of How Mysticism Shaped Our Nation, Awakened Mind, One Simple Idea, How Positive Thinking Reshaped Modern Life. He's appeared on Dateline NBC, All Things Considered, Coast to Coast AM, Montel Williams, The History Channel, and more, and is the recipient of the 2019 Walden Award for Interfaith Intercultural Understanding. The documentary series Cursed Films is a five-part exploration produced by Shudder diving into the myths and legends behind some of Hollywood's notoriously cursed horror film productions. It is celebrating its release to DVD and Blu-ray August 18th, also available on digital. One of the highest rated Shudder films and series on Rotten Tomatoes with a 95% and its most watched documentary content ever. We are honored to welcome its writer, director, and editor, Jay Cheel, and one of its hosts and contributors, Mitch Horowitz. Yeah! Thank you. That was quite the intro. Well, it's quite the series, we must say. We're huge fans of what you guys did with this. And congratulations on the physical incarnation. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. As a a physical media lover, I'm still holding on to that. I I have, uh, you know, 2,500 Blu-ray discs and it's... This is why I'm still in Thorold, Ontario. I can't move because I would have <laughs> my Blu-ray collection. Um, but yeah, it's very exciting. And I mean, even more exciting is I just discovered that Mitch was on Montel Williams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I was. The, 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 right. There's a story behind that. May, may, may I offer a quick diversion? Yeah, of course. It was, yeah. It was, yes, it was yeah. During, it was, I rarely get to tell this anymore. It was during the whole 2012 thing, you know, where people thought the world was going to end. And so I, I brought them on and I, they brought me on and we had what I considered was a very sober, mythologically based discussion about 2012. And the producers said to me, how would you like to be identified? And I said, author and historian is just fine. And they said, OK, great. So then I'm sitting in my living room weeks later watching the show and it says underneath my name, believes the world may end in 2012. <laughs> so, but. <laughs> But I pointed out to my friends and said, may end, may end. <laughs> Not one of those ring nuts. You know, so. That was my story. You know, I was very proud. Very that proud. is awesome. Yeah. See, that's that's yeah. exactly what we were uh, trying to avoid with Cursed Films is bringing people in and then, you know, having some agenda and trying to shape it towards something supernatural where maybe it isn't. Just allowing people to be themselves and represent their own stories and not pull a Montel and misidentify and so on and so forth. So that's, I, I, it still sounds like an amazing experience. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I mean, one of the great things about one of the many great things about Chris films is exactly what you're talking about. You don't, you don't really put words in, in people's mouths and you really let them tell the story. It's not sensationalism. Before we get into that though, we'd love to just get a feel of both your own personal histories with the horror genre itself and, and some of the earliest experiences you can remember about being exposed to it, maybe first films you've seen or ones that be, have become canon for you guys. Jay, you can go first. It feels like it's a, a cliched answer at, at this point, but there was a time when it wasn't. And that's to say that John Carpenter was obviously a big influence on me, not only just as a horror fan, but as a filmmaker. My parents rented lots of movies, and I think it's a common story amongst horror fans that they were exposed to films at a younger age than maybe they should have been. 
so movies like The Exorcist and Prince of Darkness was one that scared the shit out of me and Black Christmas. And then the horror adjacent movies like The Day After, which had me worried that we were going to be annihilated by uh, nuclear missiles. But in terms of actual horror, I think it would for me, it's I mean, I have a Fright Night poster up behind me. That was a big one for me. And John Carpenter's The Thing, as I said, Prince of Darkness, the Friday the 13th movies, because that's ultimately when I ended up getting a high eight video camera as a kid. You always end up with, you know, some sort of borrowed hockey mask that you <laughs> add some details to and some dirt. And suddenly you're in a park getting your friend to hold a knife and the cops are being called and it's all fun. But um, yeah, so that, that's uh, that, you know, just all the classic 80s horror films that I was exposed to in this sort of video store era. Thanks to my parents. And how about yourself, Mitch? Well, I was always a horror fan, but I think probably growing up in the borough of Queens in New York City, I gravitated more towards folklore and mythology. I vividly remember rushing home from the local library with copies of books on Pennsylvania Dutch folklore and superstitions. It was an exciting time. You know, I remember my sister coming home from school with paperback books by Carlos Castaneda and books on Bigfoot and flying saucers and the Mike Douglas show would always have on these robed gurus and astrologers. And I said to myself, I want to be on Mike Douglas someday. And I got my wish. And so um, I always ask myself, where did this stuff come from? You know, and how did it reach us in the modern era? You know, although people kind of roll their eyes about newspaper horoscopes and that kind of thing, every one of us knows our sun sign and can probably say something about it. And that stuff really goes back, you know, to, to deepest antiquity, at least in parts. And so I wanted to ask myself, you know, what permutations occurred? What, what thread can you follow as to how all this reached us in, in modern life? You know, how, why, why do we know what vampires are? You know, why do we talk about exorcisms? Why do we know what any of this stuff is? You know, other than entertainment, although sometimes entertainment has been a conduit for it, but that's where my central began. Mitch, is there a singular event that convinced you of the existence or, or that have shown you examples of the unseen dimensions that are around us? I did have a funny incident that happened to me when I was nine years old. I write about this in my book, Cult America. I took out a book of Pennsylvania Dutch folklore from the public library. I brought it home and inside there was this layout of a pentagram like chart. And the idea was you're supposed to shut your eyes and gravitate a pin above the chart and then just bring down the pin and that would tell you your fortune. So I brought it down on, on what said a letter, the arrival of a letter. And being nine, I didn't receive very much in the way of letters. The very next day, a letter did arrive from the Belrose Public Library and it was an overdue book notice. And I thought, <laughs> aha, see, see cynics. And so what can I say? <laughs> Ever since, you know. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. Hey, Jay, growing yeah. up in Ontario, Jay, did you ever watch uh, The Hilarious House of Frightenstein? I did, yes. Yeah, yeah that's very few. It's a Canadian horror thing. It really is. Yeah. It's like yeah. the gateway Canadian horror drug. Yeah, Wolfman DJ. And... Yes, that's right. <laughs> so, I mean, the big question here, obviously, to Jay is how the concept of, of doing this documentary came about. Well, it was brought to me by Shudder. So uh, a friend of mine, Owen Shiflet, who was with them at the time, had this, uh, this concept brought to him by Robin Jones at Shudder, uh, who was there at the time. And 
I think he thought that I would be the perfect fit for it because I'm a documentary filmmaker, but also a horror fan. And I had just done a, a short documentary called Twisted, which was about a local drive-in here in Niagara that in the 90s was hit by a tornado. And the urban legend is that the tornado blew through the screen while the movie Twister was playing. Yes, we've heard yeah. this story. Yeah. Yes. And even further to that, some people say it blew through the screen while the scene in Twister at a drive-in when a tornado hit a drive-in in the movie was playing. Like it's just some like multi-layered meta weirdness. And so I did a short documentary investigating that claim and interviewed some people who said very confidently they were there. They saw pieces of the screen flying apart and it was just this insane evening. And I also interviewed the drive-in employees who said that no movies played because they lost power and the screen that got torn apart was not the screen that Twister was scheduled to play on. So it was this very interesting urban legend that a lot of people just swore by. But clearly, you know, there, were, there was some elaboration in terms of the, the storytelling. So that, that felt like a, well, weirdly, like almost a proof of concept for my approach to cursed films, which is to um, not debunk, you know, like it, it, there's nothing, no interest in just setting out to debunk these cursed legends, but just to figure out why we're so fascinated by them and have some fun retelling them as well. And then Mitch, how did you uh, hop on board? Well, Jay invited me on board and we had a discussion. Well, actually, of all places, I was at the Theosophical Society headquarters in Chicago, which is an old occult organization <laughs> where I was giving a talk and their campus looks like uh, pre-Hogwarts. And uh, Jay called me and, and we had a conversation there. And I was very encouraged by it because it wasn't really a pre-interview, strictly speaking. It was just kind of a meeting of the minds. And uh, he was he was very direct and straightforward with me about the fact that, you know, there are folks who are participating in the project who fall more on the side of what would be called skepticism. And, you know, I tend to address these topics with a critical sympathy. And he was uh, he was very interested in having both approaches. And I, I really appreciated that. The Boo Crew will be right back. Art. A film of tender love and the screams of vampire death. Now there's a powerful motion picture that rips at your emotions. The Vampire Lovers. It brings you beautiful love and vampire evil. And it'll drive your mind through a thousand terror-filled moments. You'll hear whispers of warm desire become shrieks of chilling death. You'll taste the deadly passion of the vampire lovers and become a slave of the damned. You'll discover the sweet embrace and the deadly kiss of blood nymphs who refuse to die. The Vampire Lovers. It's in color, and it had to be rated R. Under 17 must be accompanied by a parent or adult guardian. Don't miss The Vampire Lovers. <laughs> So in the series, you're obviously covering films and experiences that have suffered at times great tragedies and, and loss. And some of the people during the interview process even have to stop down and they, they can't continue or they say, cut, I can't talk about this or I, I don't feel comfortable talking about this. What was your pitch to get people to participate in those sensitive matters? And were there people who were not so easy to convince? 
Yeah. I mean, I think the pitch was just that very simply, we wanted them to be open and honest about their experience making the, the film and what happened on the set and also their feelings about the legend that followed and how people kind of engage with these sort of stories of, of films being cursed, especially in regards to movies that had real tragedies connected to them. And I think that was kind of a refreshing approach that they, they were being offered the opportunity to speak freely about it without any sort of agenda being applied to the interview. I mean, I always go back to Craig Reardon, who is a special makeup effects artist on Poltergeist. And that curse, some people claim, was brought upon the film because of the use of real human skeletons on set. So when I reached out to him and asked him to talk about that, his initial response was that he would sue me personally if we even mentioned his name in the show because he had gotten so much flack over this story because of uh, an appearance he made on E! True Hollywood Story. And they, they kind of, kind of much like Mitch was labeled on the Montel Williams show, took his story and kind of used it to push the, the uh, narrative of a curse. So he wanted to make sure that if he took part in something that that wouldn't happen again. So his very sort of angry is maybe too much, too harsh of a word, but very pointed in uh, email response had me at first concerned, but then I replied to him and I just said, that's exactly what I would like you to say on camera. Say whatever you feel like you need to say about this. Address the internet directly and your concerns with how they've connected this practice, which was common at the time of using medical skeletons uh, on, on sets to the death of two young girls in, in the first film and just, you know, essentially use this as some sort of cathartic release of your frustration with that connection. So he was into that and he took part and he's one of the, I think, best moments in the series, his, his sort of honest perspective on that and his explanation, that little bit of film history regarding the use of skeletons on sets. But it, but it is an uphill battle reaching out to someone saying, you know, we're, we're contacting you about the series Cursed Films. Will you talk about this horrendous thing that happened 30 years ago, you know, that you've probably talked about a number of times already and maybe just want to let go of? So that, you know, that's, that's the challenge. And it was just announced that we're doing a second season and we're just we're, we're going through that process again. And I think it's a little easier now because we have this first season to point to as this is what we have in mind. And this is the kind of approach we take. And that's definitely helpful. But with this first season, we didn't have that to point to. It was just kind of our ability to articulate what our intentions were and hope that they trusted us. Yeah. His and Michael Berryman's, what he was talking about, The Crow, are yeah. two extremely poignant parts of this series in, in terms of exactly yeah. what you're talking about. As far as a filmmaker and sitting in there in a documentary, which is you've done many different times, how do you handle the room when you get to those moments when someone's like, I, I'm not comfortable and they're, they're looking off camera and it kind of breaks the, well, how do you react? I think it's such a casual engagement that, you know, we just take the time to let them do what they need to do, gather their thoughts or I just allow them to kind of 
carry the interview in terms of what's appropriate and what isn't, what they feel comfortable talking about, what they don't. I'm certainly not going to push them. Like Linda Blair in the Exorcist episode mentions not wanting to talk about having bodyguards. I mean, her not wanting to talk about that almost says more about that than if she uh, opened up about it. So, so I just allow the subjects to kind of dictate what their comfort level is and just try to keep it as conversational and friendly as possible. And I mean, luckily so far in my career, I've, I've made films and shows about people who are all interesting and engaging and, and often just very kind and empathetic and nice. And, you know, so it's never had to get to a point where an interview interview feels confrontational. I haven't made a, a show about neo-Nazis or something like it. That might be different, a different scenario, but yeah, I, I just like it. I mean, we're basically, when you ask a subject to take part in a, a film or a TV show, it's a, a level of mutual trust, but they're, they're as much a part of the production as, as I am in terms of shaping the, the storytelling and what they're willing to offer us. And so I'm, I'm always thankful that anyone is, is willing to sit down at all and share their, their stories, especially if it's someone you know like Richard Sawyer, who was on the set of the Twilight Zone movie and is willing to, um, I, I guess, just, you know, offer such a raw perspective on what happened that night. So just, just being appreciative of that. It's a collaborative thing, really. For season one, what was the process like picking the films that you were going to cover? Did you guys have a big list or did you always know the films that you wanted to cover in season one? We did start with a, a slightly bigger list. And I think the way we narrowed it down was trying to pick films where the, the, the cursed legends attached to them didn't feel too similar. Like I wanted it to feel like each episode was slightly different. So wanting, wanting that sort of that feel that there is an arc, but also each episode could stand on its own. And also I think with this season, it does feel like it's kind of a, a greatest hits of, you know, cursed films. If you go, if you Google it and find whatever Buzzfeed listicle or, you know, whatever you, you hit, when you search it, these are probably the films that will be near the top of the list. And they're certainly the ones that I remember hearing a lot about when discussing tragic things that would happen on film sets and supposedly cursed productions. Mitch, did you ever feel in uh, Jay and, and, and yourself delving down this path, did you ever feel it necessary to protect the documentary for inheriting any bad juju? Or did you think that was even a, a something that could happen? Oh, no, I wasn't. I wasn't really asked. Uh, <laughs> Jay did have a couple of uh, magic practitioners on a couple of the episodes. I think that the, you know, probably what I don't want to speak for him, but, you know, probably one of the things that Jay had to deal with in terms of perceptions or, or bad or good juju was the fact that if you're calling something cursed films, it's, it's starting from the presumed premise that, you know, there's something to this. And I, I felt that one of the great successes of the series, at least as a as a viewer and sometime participant was that it offered the forensics of exactly what happened and, and did so in a way that took stock of the human tragedy. These were people's lives in some cases that were lost and, and these were accidents that scarred the survivors for the rest of their lives. And I felt just 
very proud, you know, watching it of what Jay had done because it, it didn't, it didn't ever lose sight of the fact that these were human beings and human lives behind all these events. So we have to, you know, talk about these things with a certain degree of veneration. These films all had one tragedy in common, which is the death of a cast or crew or friends and family of theirs, perhaps. I know this might be a little far-fetched, but was it ever determined if there was a common denominator, such as poor pre-production or safety planning or budgets, behind these films to be cursed with such tragedies? I don't think there's a common denominator across all five, but certainly, you know, you can look at a number of them and and consider the the lack of consideration for safety on set, certainly with Twilight Zone, the movie, certainly with The Crow, with something like Poltergeist, a lot of the tragedy connected to that film or that series was kind of outside of the the production, especially in in terms of Dominique Dunn and Heather O'Rourke. Those were just horrible. You know, Dominique Dunn was, was killed by her, her ex-boyfriend and Heather O'Rourke passed away, you know, way too young. Obviously, things that were not the result of skeletons on on the set. But you can, you know, I, one thing I was really happy about with the series is, and I had always you know, tried to wrap my head around the accident on the set of The Crow and how that could possibly happen. And when we had that demonstration done with the dummy bullet, being able to clearly demonstrate that like what the steps are to make that accident occur and the fact that stefano the guy who was doing it could replicate that over and over like if if this happens if you forget to clear that barrel that's what the result will be and that just really for me and hopefully for the audience clarified how easily an accident like that can happen if you're not paying total attention to everything that's happening on a set And again, with Twilight Zone, the movie, you know, like just the idea of the hubris of the film director who wants everything bigger and louder and is kind of has his eye on the the end product and how the audience will experience that in the theater rather than what's happening in front of him on the set. And there were a lot of corners cut in that scenario. You know, I always talk about the so there's footage that is out there and some of it is in the show of this accident and, you know, that was the last night of shooting. They're, they're capturing this amazing stunt with this Vietnam village exploding and a, a helicopter coming around. And Vic Morrow is carrying these two kids and, and they wanted to get it all in one big scene. So they had, I think, five cameras on the set and didn't use any doubles for this, this moment sent Vic Morrow out. And when you look at the footage, it, it's just insane because the wide angle, which we show in the, the series is so wide that you can't see who, who is carrying those kids. Like it could be a stunt double with two dummies, like two dolls. It's so wide. And then when you look at the, the closer, the tighter shots, you can't see the helicopter. So what is the, you know, what is the logic behind that? If anything, it's money, it's, you know, time, and it's the director just wanting to put on this huge spectacle in the moment and not considering that when we get to the final product, it doesn't matter if you blew up these huts and flew this helicopter and sent this actor out into the water all in one take. That's nothing people will understand outside of those who are on the set. And it it feels like it was completely unnecessary, which makes it 
all the more tragic. There was one episode where you consult with a magician who practices in the dark arts and he curses a film set with the theory that in order for a film to be truly cursed, it must be something thrust upon it from an outside source. And he actually does a ritual where he purportedly curses a film production without saying what it is. Are there any updates on that? Well, I mean, I can say the film is delayed. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Imagine that. Right. In quarantine. Exactly. He, yeah. Did he cause COVID? Right. I've been thinking like, all, is I that, mean, is that all the face that launched the thousand ships? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that was interesting because for me, it was really just about, I don't, when we were out filming that, <clears throat> it, it felt like, okay, I, I want to see what this looks like because as someone trying to wrap my head around the idea of a cursed film, I, w- I was trying to, th- you know, figure out, does this mean that there has to be someone actually on the end, other end of that curse, actively cursing a film because they have something out against, you know, the director or whatever it might be, or could a film be cursed just because of the subject matter that it's getting a little too close to what it's representing. And unknowingly they film kind of uh, lets loose this bad karma. So in, in that regard, I, I, we went out and saw uh, EA Coetting who is, to be fair, maybe even for some of the people we interview in the show on the extreme end of, you know, someone who's a YouTube personality who allows or offers these classes and how to do these rituals that I don't know, I, I, I can't speak to the validity or ridiculousness or whatever of, of that concept. But I, to me, it feels like I wouldn't be going to Eric to ask him to train me how to do a ritual so that I can get a new motor motorcycle. Like he claims he did, (laughs) but he having said that, like talking with him, even though ultimately some of the, the ideas were hard to wrap my head around. He was just such a, an open and honest person who, who really just offered a perspective that to some might seem silly, but I, I think it just for me reveals that, there are equally silly things that we all believe in and engage in on a daily basis, I think. And, and there are varying levels to that, that, you know, you can just point to sports and the idea of superstitious baseball players who have their lucky gloves or, you know, whatever it might be. I, I, I think I just walked away from it, understanding that some of the stuff we got there did feel a little silly at times but it also was a little bit humbling because it's like don't be too quick to judge you you everyone has their own level of of magical thinking that they engage in and i think take quite seriously including myself so it was an interesting experience for sure mitch is there any media that you know of or have heard tell of that is purported to have actual paranormal energies be it negative or positive the the one we've heard about recently is zach baggins demon house documentary that has a warning before the film begins anything like that that you've heard of i don't know of any media that makes those claims that i've ever found to offer anything legit in fact you know having participated in 
any number of, of such shows from the Montel Williams show, you know, on up forward, it can be extremely difficult for the filmmaker, or for the participants who may be people who approach the subject with a kind of ingenuousness. Maybe they have a critical sympathy, maybe they're hardcore believers and they're participating in something that for them has all the sanctity of a religious practice. And yet there are demands placed on these people to essentially produce miracles on camera. And they find themselves under terrible pressure. And I think sometimes sincerity is compromised. I do think that there is phenomena in our world that can be probed in a really mature and intelligent way that ventures into what we might call the extra physical. Like, for example, I personally am very interested in academic ESP research. And that research, which is very inexpensive, is something that I defend. And I think it's uh, unfortunate for our generation that to a great extent, it's been hounded off of college campuses. I think we've lost a lot of progress within a legitimate setting. So that's the kind of thing you know, that I gravitate towards. I'm more interested in, in that kind of research in a clinical setting versus something where you know, we're shining the old infrared camera on people's eyes while they're hunting for Bigfoot, which I think, personally speaking, I've, I've never encountered anything other than fraud or, or just a kind of willingness to look the other way in those settings. I know a lot about horror, but are there any cursed films that are like romantic comedies or comedy movies? Like, do you ever hear about cursed films that have nothing to do with horror or religion? Well, I mean, the one that comes to mind immediately is Three Men and a Baby. That's oh, yeah. Right. The ghost. Oh, yeah. Isn't there a ghost or something yes. in that? Aren't yeah. they remaking that? I don't know, but they got to contact the ghost. <laughs> ghost is holding it. <laughs> I remember in high school, our, one of our teachers showing us that clip and everyone in our, our class, or it wasn't high school, it was grade school. Everyone in our class freaked out. If you look back at it, now that there's the high def versions of these films rather than the VHS tapes, you can clearly see it's a, a stand up or a standee of Ted Danson's character who's, I think, selling a book or something. But at the time, it, it looked very convincing and was very freaky. So but I, I do think, you know, to your your question, a lot of the um, these cursed legends that have the most the longest shelf life are the ones that are connected to horror films and more specifically horror films in which the curse sort of mirrors the plot of the movie where it feels like you're directly engaging with the characters in some strange way. And it's revealing something about our reality and connecting it to this fantasy on the screen. One of the most compelling films that we've seen in recent years with an occult theme would probably be Liam Gavin's 2016 film, A Dark Song, that is a fictionalized account of the Abramelin ritual. I was wondering, Mitch, if there are any documented real life truths of rituals like that existing and are there any films that have gotten it right? There are people who I think are schooled in historical occult practice who once in a while, once in a while can be persuaded to go on screen and conduct a ritual. Uh, a friend of mine, Jim Wasserman, who's very steeped in the work of the British magician Alistair Crowley went on a, a show at one point and performed a ritual. It was entirely legitimate. Uh, I don't think that anything occurred that was of a sensationalistic nature, but, you know, once in a while, you'll come across it once in a while. Usually the people who are really steeped 
in some sort of occult practice in a serious way. And again, you know, who approach it as seriously as another person might approach the Catholic mass tend to be somewhat shy about it, you know, because they're concerned about some of the very things we've been talking about. So there aren't too many, but once in a while, if you look carefully, you'll find them. And what's, I mean, what's your general opinion? Are these cursed films or are they a series of coincidences? Who creates the curse? Is it, is it just folklore and legend and, and the telling the stories that perpetualizes that myth or how does it work? Well, it's interesting. You know, horror is such a fascinating genre because it is probably the closest of movie genres, maybe the only of movie genres, really, with maybe sci-fi, a distant runner-up, that coincides with belief. You know, people watch things in horror movies that they take with the deadliest seriousness. For example, you know, it's my contention that if it weren't for The Exorcist, most people walking around in the Western world today probably would have very little idea about what an exorcism is. Almost all of their mind's eye pictures of that come from that film, whether they've seen it or not. And my reckoning would be that if The Exorcist was never released as a movie, if the novel had never been written, exorcist or exorcism would probably be a crossword puzzle term today, you know, that we would come across very rarely. And yet it is a fact that in North America, the number of church sanctioned, Catholic church sanctioned exorcists has actually quintupled in about the past 10 years. And this is absolutely true. And people feel a need for this in their lives. And yet what's so astonishing is that the church's exorcism ritual is in Latin. It's copyrighted. It's very closely held because they don't want it to get released to people who are going to exploit it and so on. It's never fully been filmed. And, and yet, every, virtually every one of us walking around today in North America could tell you exactly what an exorcism is, whether it's been 20 years since we've seen that movie, whether we've never seen that movie. It's just amazing to me the manner in which themes from horror movies coincide with, with belief. So there's a kind of interesting cultural alchemy there. Yeah, in regards to these uh, rising cases of exorcisms, has it been determined what the percentages of these reported to be true, perhaps? Oh, it's tough to track those numbers. I mean, to be frank, you know, social scientists can't even settle on the success rate in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, which you think would be trackable, but they can't decide, you know, what constitutes the success rate? You know, do you count the people who quit the program? Do you just count the veterans who really stick with it? You know, so it, it's so subjective, you know, it's so subjective. It's really hard to approach it. And of course, you know, most social scientists would take the attitude, understandably, that it's a psychological disorder. And so, you know, I, I don't know that they would even approach the question from, you know, even allow for the the possibility that there's something beyond the psychological uh, afoot. I've always been fascinated with the Brandon Lee uh, tragedy, and I always think about these stories of people being shot in the torso and surviving. And I always, you know, thought about this: was it ever reported in an autopsy report exactly where the bullet hit him? It hit him in I can't remember the exact spot, but it, it hit an artery. So he he died because it just hit him in the unfortunately the right spot to kill him. I know Lance Anderson, who I interviewed, he spoke about being there on the set. It just sounds like it was a horrible, a horrible scenario. I mean, the, the fact that, and, you know, again, with going back to this idea of curses mirroring elements of films and, and giving it its power, the connection to Game of Death, which we show in the, in the episode, which shows Bruce Lee in that film playing 
a stunt performer who's shot on a film set is just such a, a, a strange mirroring of events. So, I mean, the doesn't really specifically answer your question, but yeah, I mean, it just feels like, again, like the, the perfect storm of bad circumstances to have led to his death. I mean, if you just thinking about the idea that all it took was someone to look down a barrel and see that it's blocked, which is something that you would think would be completely ingrained in the, the minds of people working with guns on set. But I think, you know, you, you get into that danger of just getting caught up in going with the flow and maybe not being as careful because you're, you're too confident. You're over, overly confident that you're checking everything and making sure everything is, it, it reminds me of, you know, my, my dad was in the hospital. Unfortunately, he passed away in January and he was in the hospital for lung cancer. And one of the nurses who is just in this mode of doing the same thing over and over every day, neglected to check his chart and one day gave him all of the medication for uh, another patient who was diabetic. So my mom got the call that there's been a mix up and your husband was given this full day of medication for a different patient was given insulin and everything. And so the nurse that ultimately was responsible for that, it was just almost a similar case, I think, of being overly confident in their position and just kind of allowing themselves to go on auto drive in a, a situation where you just simply can't allow yourself to go on auto drive. So yeah, it's just very tragic. With the release of this first season on, on DVD and Blu-ray, are there any extra features or supplementaries for those looking to get a little bit of a deeper dive into the process of what you guys did? There are commentary. I do a commentary track on each episode. So there's five commentary tracks. You can listen to more of this. Either it's a selling point or it isn't. I don't know. No, for sure. For sure. No, anyone yeah. that's interested in this is going to yeah, love to hear more of those stories. Yeah. So there was just oh, announced yeah. the news of uh, the season two. Even heading outside of North America is what we've heard. Can you tell us just a little bit of what's in store, how it's going to be uh, different? Well, I mean, I'm not allowed to talk about the films yet, but I would say that I'm excited because it's a very diverse collection of movies. And I think that much like The Crow was horror, kind of horror adjacent, there are a couple selections in here that are similarly thinking outside the box a little bit. And I'm really excited about those. And we're, we're still in pre-production, but we're having some some good luck with getting some really great people on board. I think because of the success of the first season, and now we can demonstrate what our intentions are, and people are just really willing to take part and tell their stories. So, so yeah, we're very excited. And it's just going to be a, a wider scope. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I think there will be some, both some films that will be refreshing and, and maybe new to some people watching the show. And then some that will be, again, just you'll hear, especially one title in particular for horror fans will be like, okay, I'm, I want to hear about the making of this one. So, yeah, we're very excited. Wow, that's, that's, that's exciting. No, can, that's great. Yeah. That's great. And then Mitch, yeah. are you gonna, what's your uh, involvement in this next series? Are you, are you part of it? I'm just standing by, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but I'm very excited about uh, to learn more about the choice of films. I know that not everything was able to be contained in the first 
season. And I, I think there's some extraordinary choices coming. Ah, so excited. You guys, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate yes. it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It was a lot of fun. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 154. Special thanks to our guests, Jay Cheel and Mitch Horowitz. Follow Mitch at Mitch Horowitz23 and J.Cheel on Instagram. See Shudder's cursed films on Shudder, digital, DVD, and Blu-ray now. Production tracks for this episode provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shands and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shands, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shands. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting. Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGTBQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.